Hello, and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Arius Komporosos Athanasiu, and I'm Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London. And my name is Max Haven, and I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. And I'm uh, A.T. Kingsmith, a PhD candidate in politics at York University. And uh, it's my uh, pleasure to invite uh, Alina Chia to be, to be on our show today. Um, she's going to be joining us. And Alina is assistant professor in the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University, an incoming lecturer of media, communications, and cultural studies at Goldsmiths, University of London. She teaches cultures of creativity, such as automation and digital game production, lucid dreaming and consciousness hacking, communities of practice, and wellness ideologies in social media disconnection. She is co-author of Technopharmacology, coming up from the University of Minnesota Press, and has published journals uh, in journals such as the Journal of Fandom Studies, and uh, television and new media. So thank you for being uh, here with us today, Alina. We're really excited to, to talk to you. Thank you for having me. So I thought we'd maybe just, just open with a bit more of a general question, uh, kind of an introduction to some of the core themes in your, in your work. And so just wanted to begin by asking you to maybe briefly outline for our listeners uh, your analysis maybe of hobbies as this mediating category or boundary work that exists kind of in relations in, in between labor and, and recreation. So if you could maybe just speak to us a little bit more about an introduction to kind of your analysis around, yeah, hobbies and, and sort of what you mean by that intervention. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, leisure as we know it today, uh, it, you know, this idea of work and play and how they go hand in hand, or even, you know, the idea of work-life balance. Uh, and especially, you know, like uh, this mantra that if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. All these sorts of everyday understandings, you know, they come out of industrialization as a historical and as a material transformation, right? Of how we experience our time and also how we experience ourselves. Uh, this was a separation of the workday from non-work. And this was usually organized around the factory and its clock. So many people have written about this, you know, like most recently, I think Melissa Gregg, you know, had a great uh, piece on, um, on the Fordist clock, a uh, co-authored piece. So, uh, you know, during the height of Fordism, uh, this was divided into rest. Uh, leisure was divided, you know, was part of rest and rejuvenation for the next work shift. And it was always seen, you know, in this kind of, you know, do this for something else, you know, in a kind of compensatory way. You rest so that you can work another day. Uh, and also the kinds of leisure at the height of, you know, of the Fordist factory and, you know, the company town was a kind of very normative form of leisure. There used to be things like sports, you know, that would bolster the family, it would bolster, you know, the community and also industrial values more broadly, you know, obviously, you know, the idea of the work ethic. So when I talk about, you know, boundary work or when I, when I start to, to think about the, the relationality between labor and leisure, uh, I'm thinking about the work of Christina Nippert Ng. So she discusses boundary work from a sociology of um, uh, ethnographies of work and home and how specifically people negotiated the idea of work and home through very specific rituals, through very specific you know, practices. Uh, and it constantly took work 
to make sure that these areas of their lives were relatively separated. So again, you know, the emphasis here is on that relationality. And they would negotiate that in relation to, for example, you know, the um, uh, broader understandings or the normative understandings, you know, in society of how work and um, uh, work and play, you know, work and leisure, they should be separated, you know, within, you know, work-life balance, but also how we can increasingly use leisure towards, you know, forms of productivity, sometimes waged, you know, but sometimes also unwaged and lots of gradations in between. As a person who studies, you know, who's interested in post fordist productivity, this obviously, you know, comes to bear uh, in my work. Uh, and, you know, it takes work to make sense of where that boundary is at. It takes work to make sense, you know, of uh, in relation to your society, your community, and your class norms. And these boundaries, you know, they're being uh, increasingly eroded, right, by what we now understand as the mass flexibilization of work. Uh, and more people have to do this kind of boundary work on a daily basis. You know, people do it in sync pieces. People do it, you know, when they when they arrange, you know, their folders on their on their computer. You know, they do it when they have an, a separate device for work for play. You know, when they have a drawer that they put their, you know, their cell phone into so they don't have to look at it over the weekend. All this, you know, these are forms of boundary work. Whereas, you know, when Christina Nippert Ng in the '90s, you know, was studying this, it was. It, it was in a different scale. It was on a different scale to what we do today, you know, with all these micro boundaries that we have to we have to set up. But more broadly, you know, beyond boundary work, the boundary framework is something that you know anthropologists, sociologists, you know, um, uh, communication scholars are all interested in broadly. Uh, this is kind of a push against, you know, stop thinking about boundaries, you know, stop thinking about excuse me binaries, and you know, again, stop thinking about, for example, this idea of uh, hybridization of work and play. This is the for me. This is a dead end. It is a dead end to think about, you know, any kind of hybrid formation uh, as an endpoint, right? It is not. It's you know, it's constantly being negotiated. So, you know, um, uh, in my work, I look at some other theorists, some other frameworks, and try to propose, you know, uh, a more relational way of looking at it. That's always in process instead of a kind of um, theoretical destination. So, you know, uh, and I just okay, I just want to speak briefly again about the kind of flexibilization of work. It, it, we see this in examples. You know, I look at gaming hobbies, right? But I also draw from people who have studied online on-demand platform labor apps. You know, work from home regimes, for example. Um, Part of this equation is also the rise of productivity tracking apps and wearables. I spoke about Melissa Gregg's uh, chapter, but also, you know, uh, Counterproductive is a great book that looks at the rise of these, you know, these kinds of productivity uh, apps and wearables, timers, programs that help us to keep our work and our lives in check and in line. Okay? Uh, hobbies and leisure are not the same, right? Because hobbies are productive forms of leisure. Uh, they are activities that you undertake by yourself or, or with others, you know, uh, in which you make something. Sometimes, you know, you make a thing in a makerspace, for example, you make a, a computing wearable, right? You make a sculpture, but sometimes, you know, you make an experience like a tabletop game or, you know, like a live action role-playing campaign. Uh, but the point is here, what differentiates a hobby from leisure is that a hobby takes planning and coordination. And it's something that is pleasurable because you do it from start to finish. Right? What does this compare to? This compares to the assembly line and also the metaphor of the assembly line that organizes, you know, all of, you know, the way that we divide labor, you know, in, um, in, all, in all sectors, I would, I would argue that we don't do things from start to finish. So that's why this is so pleasurable. That's why, you know, the people that I studied, you know, 
they took their hobbies so seriously because it meant that they had control not only you know over their own time but they also had control over the the you know ostensibly what was the product whether it was an experience or whether you know it was a it was a tangible thing so you know in this sense, the hobbies, uh, what I want to emphasize is that hobbies are not some kind of idyllic, you know, formation. They are institutionalized and they were institutionalized historically in the U.S. in a very specific way, you know, in post-war era, right, when there was lack of work. So again, you know, you see uh, historically, you know, institutionally, work and hobbies always go hand in hand and they don't just form, you know, out of thin air, you know, you need institutions to prop them up. You need like hobby magazines to tell you what it is and what it will be. You know, and this is always changing, which is why, you know, uh, for me, it's extremely interesting what it will be, what, what will hobbies be, you know, in this so-called future of work that we keep hearing about, you know, it's not the same as, you know, the, um, the maker magazines, you know, or the hobbies magazines, you know, that, um, that, that we see in the archive. I mean, th these themes tie together many of the things that we're so fascinated by on this podcast, one of them being the changing nature of capitalism in a digital age. Another being the culture that's grown up around games and gaming. And I wanted to ask you just to maybe tell us a bit about the ethnographic work you did with game designers, game hobbyists, game enthusiasts, and how uh, many of the things you're talking about were reflected in the way that they saw their, their work and their leisure and their activity as well. I studied a, um, uh, a, a not-for-profit not organization uh, of live-action role-playing players, uh, and it was um, uh, it was based on the franchise, the World of Darkness franchise, uh, which at the time of my fieldwork was uh, was was managed by CCP Games, um, and uh, I. I talked to them, you know, I went to, for like 18 months, you know, I went to uh, these, these LARPs, these live action role-playing role uh, sessions, you know, they would be like, you know, for like four hours long. And, you know, there would be before and after there would be, you know, social events and during the week, you know, uh, between these official games that would happen maybe like twice a month, um, uh, there would be a lot more informal activities. Uh, and it was, you know, it, it was, it, involved in participant observation uh, that was based in Boston. Uh, and, you know, the people that I spoke to, we played out games in Boston, but people lived, you know, all around the area. And because it was a, a US-wide not-for-profit organization, which communicated, for example, you know, uh, online, you know, through like mailing lists, but also through, um, at the time, Discord was not as was not as popular, but they used other, like Google Docs, for example. Um, and um, and they would coordinate their, uh, for example, all their character sheets, you know, because it would be it would be a campaign that went on for maybe like, you know, some of these campaigns went on for like over three years. So everything would be coordinated. I was so interested in, you know, in the bureaucratic aspects, you know, of course, you know, when you think about LARP, you think about the artistry of it, you think about the costuming, you think about, you know, the narratives, you know, but I was interested in the bureaucracy because it took like a lot of work. <laughs> it took a lot of work to, you know, to, to coordinate this in a, you know, uh, what seemed like a analog, you know, way. A lot of these people, for for them, yeah, their hobby was was a way of life. So that's what they always talk about. They talked about a hobby being a way of life, and they didn't talk about the game as much as they asked each other. You know, so what kind of hobbies do you have? You know, maybe sometimes it's you know it's related to to uh, to you know geekery. It's related to you know like um, uh, creating costumes. You know, going to you know medieval fairs. Um, you know, and all these, they, they would, or, you know, uh, uh, the, the golf scene, you know, which in Boston was, uh, was 
significant. There was a significant scene, you know, um, during the time of my field work. So all these sorts of things intersected, and it uh, it made me, you know, really think about and really consider seriously what it what it meant for a hobby to be a way of life and how it became, you know, a way to organize their lives. In other words, you know, uh, it would be their friendship group, but it would also be part of their work. So a lot of a lot of um, the people that um, that. Uh, that I studied, that I studied with, you know, uh, they worked around like theater scenes, but they also worked around like, for example, you know, comic book clubs, you know, or excuse me, uh, comic book shops, game shops, you know, uh, they went to the same conferences that were about game writers, you know, um, they went to, for example, game conventions and the organization itself, which was its own thing, it had uh, a very specific chain of command and it had, you know, very specific regional, local, and national conventions, very much the way, you know, academics do. And all of it, you know, same way as, as the academic work is, was volunteer-based. So what does that mean? There was, uh, you know, a lot of um, incentivization. And, uh, and that was what I was interested in when I was thinking about uh, kind of compensatory logic uh, that, you know, in a broader context applies to more generally hobbies, but in a, this specific context applied to, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the ways volunteers would be compensated and how as gamers, right, they were very particular about the fairness, uh, what was fair, what was balanced. And, uh, you know, that, that, in, that interested me to no end. I wondered whether you could share with us some reflections on the, the sort of more political dimensions of this way of engaging in hobbies in this community that you studied. I'm, I'm wondering about this community that you're describing and this sense of belonging to a community, whether there is something about the values and the, the, a sense of kind of more uh, civic and political awareness that you observe that is interesting. Part of what you're doing in your work, and I enjoyed in your in your recent articles, is there is a corrective to our perceptions of of people involved in games, in in making and playing games, as uh, this 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 perception that we have of them as kind of individualized, highly individualized. And and did you see in your fieldwork uh, an an awareness of of a political dimension in 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 what these people were doing and through the game and and um, uh, and, and perhaps maybe whether the reality they were involved in, in that through playing the game, how it relates to the reality, the broader, you know, the real world, the outside of the game world and the politics of that world. All of us, I think in this chat, we, we have a sense of how gaming culture has been, you know, siloed, but also in a way like demonized, you know, as being not only frivolous, but, you know, as you mentioned, you know, individualized, you know, uh, so on and so forth. So, and, and especially, you know, because, you know, these people, we, we, you know, we were engaged in live action role playing of World of Darkness vampires, you know, so all the more there was this impetus to legitimate this practice and this was done through uh through charity work so uh the um uh the, the the conventions but also you know the everyday practice there would be this 
pushed towards, and even though it was modest, you know, it was, it was, these were modest sums, they were always linked towards, you know, charitable causes. And these charitable causes would be, would be connected with, uh, with the fandom, they would be connected with the practice of gaming more broadly. So for example, during the time that I was there, you know, there were charitable donations, you know, for based on, uh, on, on our, our participation fees, which, which were modest, you know, um, uh, towards, uh, for example, scholarships, uh, scholarships for people who were gamers and especially, you know, older people who were gamers, you know, who wanted to go back to school, um, you know, so be contributions directly to the community, uh, uh, but also beyond that more broadly to what they, what, what we imagined, you know, as uh, societal contributions. So that's within, you know, the, um, uh, the, the field work itself. That's what, you know, I can confidently say that there was a civic um, uh, or there was a civic perspective there, but even beyond that. So, you know, what I try to do with, with my work is to, is to think about the, the playing and the, and the, and the making of games. So with live action role play, you know, it's, it's, it's a process. You don't have something that ships off and then it comes back. So even that, you know, it's, there's a circularity there to all the games that we play today, but even more so for live action role play, it was an ongoing process. Like where, where would you actually draw the line between, you know, the, um, uh, the, for example, the game writer who would often participate in these games. So game writers, you know, would come to the conventions because they've been involved in this community for over 20 years from the inception of the franchise, you know, uh, from the, uh, you know, the, the DM, you know, or the game master, you know, to the player, to the newbie, you know, all these people, they were involved in creating what was the, you know, what was the experience of, um, of play, um, of uh, live action role play. So based on that, right, uh, it gave me a way to think about, you know, uh, it gave me like a, like a lens to, to go, to go beyond, you know, it's not just me. So I have many colleagues who are also working at other institutions who study game making as a creative practice. It's not just as a, not just as a, as a business, you know, uh, concern, not just as a, you know, capitalist endeavor, but as a way of life, you know, uh, you know, game, game makers. And, and um, for example, you know, I can think of two people, Brandon Keough, who's at Queensland, for example, you know, um, is, a, is a great scholar of, uh, of, of everyday, of game makers, you know, who, um, who, who work on, for example, you know, uh, HIO, you know, who work on uh, minimal platforms, who sell, who don't sell many games, but they still, you know, they still engage in the practice as a way of life. Uh, and then, you know, um, uh, Chris Young, who's in Toronto, you know, his dissertation was about everyday game makers, you know, in the city. Uh, and again, you know, these people are trying to see game making as a creative practice, as have other uh, scholars of, um, of, of creative industries more broadly. And, and drawing on Arendt, you know, I was interested in, uh, in the pieces that I wrote in thinking about how game making, game playing is, it is a form of, you know, of action. It is being in the world. It is being in the world in a way that, you know, doesn't have to be segmented into just, you know, uh, um, participating in productivism, just participating in sort of, you know, uh, in, in, in uh, uh, reiterating or reinforcing the work ethic. And it wasn't just, you know, something that, for example, you did in your leisure time, but it was making up the world in a, in a way, kind of a very um, old school Robert Puntum sort of way, you know, like, um, uh, I, I remember 
I remember speaking to, you know, this was right before the pandemic. Uh, you know, we were in a, at a conference and I was speaking to, you know, to, to one of the founders of Meetup, right? And, um, and this urge to, to meet up, to have an organization, to talk through things, you know, to be part of a community, it sounds very sort of retro, but it is a constant uh, aspect of, you know, human sociality. And that human sociality is, you know, is, uh, is, is a part. It is not the be all end all of action, but it certainly is, you know, one important facet of it that can't be sort of flattened into consumption, I think, or even production. So, you know, these are the sorts of interventions that I make, but I want to distinguish between, you know, uh, my sort of analysis of the fieldwork and, you know, what, what, I, what I can attest to, you know, uh, observing and, and, and seeing in my informants. I feel like uh, where this dovetails nicely with some of the stuff we've been talking about on this podcast and, and in some of your other work that you were telling us about conspiratorialism or, or you know, conspiracy uh, as a form of community formation, or as like a form of, of sociality. And so I, I thought in your work, in the articles we looked at, it was really interesting because you talk about, you know, it's about creating the experience of play, gaming communities, fandom communities are about being creative. Then there's also like a hierarchy with the labor that you talked about, how there's like the designer versus like the tester. And, and you know, we have a lot of conversations even on the show that if we, if we look at like something like QAnon as as a form of like LARPing, as a form of fandom, as a form of community, like are there, is there also still like a hierarchy? Is everybody creative in creating the conspiracy fantasy together? Is everybody on the same level, you know? Or are some people kind of driving it? Some people have a more creative role and some people are more in this kind of like tester role. So I guess I just, I think it's interesting for me to think about this really interesting thing you point out about there's like this different ways people participate in, in fandom and in gaming communities. And if we think about that through the lens of conspiratorialism, are there maybe some, some, some things going on there with the different layers or, or at least maybe if you could speak to how that's also a form of sociality, you know, or community formation a bit. Yeah, one of the caveats is that some of my work is media ethnographic and qualitative, um, and this speaks to, you know, gaming hobbies, but also analyzing texts by game developers at, for example, the Game Developers Conference, uh, where the evidence, you know, leads the argument. And some of my other work, you know, which have to do with conspiracism and conspiracy, what I call, what, what we, we don't call it, you know, we reuse this term conspirituality is more media theoretical. So here again, you know, the links are more speculative by design. Uh, so one tenuous link that I can make to hobbies that I feel comfortable making is that, you know, it's not an ideology, it's the way of life. So, you know, like you mentioned, you know, con conspiracists like LARPers, you know, they have market, they have monthly meetups, they have casual hangouts, you know, uh, and uh, around, for example, you know, in, in gaming, it's around fandom and geekery, right? But, you know, in, um, in uh, conspiracy communities, it's around other kinds of, you know, more politically activated, but also, you know, uh, lifestyle things, I would imagine. Like, uh, um, uh, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have the evidence for it, but I'm sure, you know, there are, there's a specific network, you know, of, um, of lifestyle orientations, you know, um, uh, that draw conspiracies and different brands of conspiracies, you know, uh, together. And also one interesting thing as a media theorist to think about, and especially in the venue that we have this work, uh, you know, published in, which is the AIR conference, is that it relates to the medium that, you know, that, that, that kind of um, brings these different forms together. 
So for example, you know, mailing lists, you know, Discord channels, you know, uh, but also, you know, other kinds of social media uh, like um, Parler and Gab and even Gab, conspiracism and, um, and you know, kind of um, networked conspirituality, which I can speak more about, it doesn't just thrive online, right? They also meet up in person. Uh, and while this has been somewhat curtailed by the pandemic, uh, you know, I think, you know, there will be a resurgence uh, of this. So, you know, if, uh, if, if I can speak a little bit more about uh, conspiracism and how we're mobilizing it in my work and, um, and my fellow panelists' work, uh, it is the confluence of new age spirituality and conspiracism. And it kind of frames reality through a kind of holistic thinking. And this connects events and energies. It connects, you know, the inner self and the outer world in, uh, in unseen ways. And like I said, you know, it's thrived online. You know, you can think of examples like uh, the weekly horoscope, you can think about, you know, the obsession with, you know, the QAnon drop, but also things like, you know, um, uh, your, um, uh, for example, your, your Pinterest board or, you know, your vision board, right? There is a kind of formal quality that underlies these ways of organizing, searching, of knowing, you know, and of, uh, of critiquing. Uh, so what we were interested in uh, doing with, with this work uh, was to think about conspiracism, not just in terms of techno-libertarian, you know, image boards, but also to think about, like I mentioned, this underlying formal quality, like what links, you know, the, um, the iconic crazy wall, you know, that we see, for example, in our favorite detective films and TV shows to something as, you know, banal, and also I might add feminized, you know, as your Pinterest boards. Right or uh, your vision boards that uh, that that Oprah has every season uh, and advocates for in O magazine, for example. So one of the underlying um, uh, concepts that we draw from uh, religious scholars of New Age uh, spiritualities is this idea, uh, this concept of perennialism. So this is the belief that it sounds kooky, but it's actually very mainstream, that different spiritual traditions, they are all equally valid because they all essentially worship the same divine source. And this emanates not just through the human body, not just through nature at large, but also through the cosmos. And this kind of perennialism, this idea that it's all the same thing, you know, you know, you just have to search for it, you just have to feel the unity of all these things. You know, this is supercharged by uh, the internet. You know, we're, we're all studying, you know, the idea of how new age ideology of manifesting is not out there. It's kind of all around us. It's in, you know, self-help books. It's in, you know, horoscopes. It's in crystals. It's in mindfulness. Uh, and, uh, you know, you'll probably know it as a law of attraction, but it's this idea that your intentions shape reality. So just to give you a sense of, you know, uh, I study consciousness hacking and I study sort of like the, um, the, the cultural text that they produce. So I don't study them ethnographically, but they literally talk about manifesting in this way. Right in this way that if you, because they use neural wearables, if you imagine it, if you feel it, your brain doesn't know the difference. And 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 through you know the uh, entrainment of your brain waves, whether it's you know uh, it's it's through, for example, you know EEG or whether it's through you know audio, uh, visual, you know um, entrainment, your brain doesn't know the difference, and you can make it real. You feel it, you make it real. Not only in your body but everywhere as well. So, you know, uh, for me, this was striking. It was striking the formal uh, resonances. So I won't say similarities or even equivalences. I would say the formal resonances between what seems like very disparate 
communities, what seems like very disparate formations between, you know, like these um, high tech, you know, cautious attackers, right? And, um, and for example, you know, um, uh, conspiracists who come from different demographics, right? Or even new age practitioners who come from a specific demographic, which is lower middle class, who have a kind of aspiring, you know, ideology. So there's an, there is a kind of um, uh, aspiration towards uh, success, productivity in a very normative um, way, even though they critique uh, what, you know, would be thought of as normie culture. I just want to go back to the the question of the image and the, the red thread and the crazy board uh, that you were mentioning and the the impulse towards this kind of discovery. And, and I wonder what you think about it in terms of us living in a world where we're sort of just saturated by data. I mean, one of the arguments about the latest turn towards conspiratorialism is that, and disinformation more generally, is that we live in a world with so much data, so much information, so many images, that it's not that we lack access to the right information, which is often the presumption of sort of liberal commentators on these problems that, oh, you know, if people had the right information, they would make the right decisions, et cetera. But in fact, that in the, in the waves and waves of data and the waves and waves of images that wash over us all the time, the challenge is actually just being able to somehow piece it all together, uh, to somehow make sense of that overwhelm and to find a sense of meaning amongst it. What do you make of that? What do you make of the role of the image, particularly in this in this moment? This is such a fascinating, you know, line of uh, of of inquiry. And even though you know it's quite speculative at this moment, you know, we're all still trying to find our footing. Except for Jonathan, you know, who works in disinformation. The rest of us, for the, for us, this is relatively new. Um, I think, you know, uh, this links in with, with my work on flexibilization and labor more broadly in the sense that, you know, what is boundary work, right? Boundary work is trying to make sense, you know, of things which appear to be in disarray. It's putting things, you know, in order um, in the very classic, you know, um, Susan Lee Starr kind of way. Uh, so again, you know, there's so much data out there, there's so much information, there's so many images that you can search, so many ways also to search for those, you know, images. Uh, and one algorithm, you know, a pit against another to find, you know, the right kind of image, the right kind of route, you know, which then becomes in a way, you know, mythologized, right, your destination down the rabbit hole. The rabbit hole now has become sort of, you know, the, um, the, the icon, you know, of, of, of our age, uh, you know, of the internet. And even though we, um, you know, in, in popular criticism, you know, on like TED Talks, for example, or even in, you know, in think pieces, there is this critique of the rabbit hole. You know, it's, it's something that we have a, um, what's the word for it? We're so ambivalent towards it. We want to rabbit hole, you know, it's part of internet you know, activities, part of internet practice. That's what we do, you know, like, give me some time. I just want to rabbit hole for a while. Okay, I won't rabbit hole for too long, you know? So these are all phrases that, you know, that have become part of, you know, of, uh, of everyday parlance, you know, around, uh, around the internet. So thinking along the lines, you know, of, um, of the crazy wall, of the vision board, you know, and as you mentioned of this, uh, you know, apophenic impulse, uh, definitely, you know, there's, there's, there's something there and it has become 
part of the effect, you know, of how we crawl the internet, of how we surf. I mean, and, and that's another thing as well, you know, all these metaphors that we used to use about surfing and, you know, like, where do you want to go today? Or even, you know, how do you want to feel today? These are in a way kind of, um, I think they need to be updated, right? They need to be updated to the way that we relate to, um, to, to online platforms uh, today. Uh, and another thing about platforms is that sometimes, you know, in platform uh, criticism, in the academy, there's this sense that that the platforms have it have it in a way altogether. So there's two impulses. One impulse is to say that you know the platforms, you know, they cannot, they don't have the um, the computing power or the manpower to moderate their content. So that's one aspect of it that there's disorder. But then the other impulse is to say that you know that these platforms they are they have in their monopolistic not just business practices but also you know uh, platform mechanisms they hold all the cards they hold all the keys you know and of course these are not you know it's not there's not this it's not a two sides argument these are these are both true and uh, and I think as uh, as researchers it's up to us to 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 sort of negotiate that. And, uh, and, and have these two aspects, the disorder and the monopolistic you know, uh, uh, critique to hold them uh, together in this sort of way. As you were talking about this new age world that is uh, this you know, fascinating world and how it's kind of ever, it's omnipresence and how um, it's unexpected alliances that we get, the, the disparate kind of communities that we get uh, with conspiracists and new, new age uh, endorsers of, of this kind of lifestyle. I was wondering uh, whether there is a possible connection that we could make with your argument that you were talking to us earlier in the beginning of our podcast about the, the identity of the gamer and the game maker as not someone who is an individual, kind of a siloed individual, but as someone who's very connected and someone who's creating through these worlds uh, a community and a way of relating. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm wondering whether there is something in this res resurgence of new age conspirituality and these, this way of actually connecting and make connection, making connections. So making connections not between, not just between data and information and this investigative kind of uh, imagination that is encouraged there, but also connecting socially. But I suppose something that we are interested in in the podcast and we want to ask is, you know, what are the, are, if any, are there any possibilities for counter conspiracies and kind of counter uh, fantasies uh, uh, to, to be realized? So on one hand, you know, the um, uh, new age culture even though it emerges from, you know, the kind of, you know, psychedelic intelligentsia of the 1960s, you know, with a very countercultural ed edge. What we see from New Age culture today, you know, in the ways that it has been documented by religious scholars, but, you know, also sociologists, uh, is that it is extremely conservative. So, you know, it, it is about, it is about uh, kind of uh, normative ways of, of continuing, you know, the, the status quo. It's often about self-improvement. And I mentioned earlier, it is also uh, about a kind of um, capitalist striving, you know, a kind of class, you know, uh, a consciousness. Um, and from my research on consciousness hacks specifically, what I think is that this idea of perennialism is um, it has the potential to be 
rather dangerous. So uh, here's the thing. So other scholars, so one, one in particular, sociologist of religion called Courtney Bender. Um, she, so she studied uh, spiritualists in, um, uh, in uh, the Northeast. So, you know, around Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, um, and one of the things that she realized was that people were talking about different things they were talking about for example their spiritual experiences so you know within like the william james you know kind of um register right that uh that a um uh a spiritual experience is something that is unarticulable uh she realized that you know even though these new age practices were about articulating all the different articulations were equally valid so you know again you see this this kind of formal resonance with you know with perennialism it doesn't matter what it is what form it takes it's all the same thing so same thing here you know when people were talking about their spiritual experiences you know it doesn't matter what form it takes it's all the same thing and similarly with dreams so you know uh, my expertise within the new age is for is within cultures of dreaming same thing there you know the contents of the dreams were not important what was important for example you know was uh, for example the creativity that ensued from dreaming practices or you know the productivity that ensued you know uh, neurally you know uh, but also uh, spiritually so I think that's really dangerous because you know if we believe in uh, in a democracy and with all the kinds of uh, of debates that are going on about how our platforms are uh, enabling but also disabling certain you know tenets core tenets of democracy, then us being able to talk to each other and compare our ideas with each other without having it all being rendered into the same unified substance, this is a very dangerous thing. You know, how can we how can we reason with each other if we are not able to, you know, to give due course to our ideas, our beliefs, you know, uh, so on and so forth. And this comes through. So I'm so excited, you know, in you know, post-COVID to do ethnographic research with consciousness hackers, precisely because it is a prism to look at democracy. Right now, you know, I look at the text that they produce, you know, for example, online, you know, um, uh, 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 through through their, their meetups, but also through, you know, like um, their conventions. But it there's a different sort of level of engagement when you reason with them tell me about what you think you know like not just what you've printed out on a flyer you know not just what you've prepared and presented but you know tell me really how are you how are you resting with the you know these differences and these uh you know um uh these different points of view so having said that Okay, and I'll just give you, I'll just give you um, uh, uh, another, another example, you know, in closing, which is the other side of the tension. The other side of the tension is this idea that um, we have to take these stories seriously. Uh, and here I'm thinking about the work of, uh, of Susan Lepselter, who's one of my mentors. Uh, she studied UFO communities and how, you know, these stories are themselves a kind of vernacular theory that to dismiss them, you know, would be not to understand, you know, what's happening here aesthetically, politically, you know, um, and on so many different registers that they are dramatic voicings of, you know, epistemological positions of, of not having control, 
right? You know, so people study conspiracies. This is, you know, almost a truism that it's about, you know, gaining back control. But the specificity of the stories are important. And, uh, and here's where, you know, we have to hold two things together. On one hand, it's really easy to sort of say, okay, these are all the formal qualities, you know, uh, in a kind of a Lobovian way. Like, you know, these are all the things about the conspiracy theories. We can boil them down. This is all that matters. But on the other hand, you know, to, to just hold these stories, listen to these stories, and give these stories, you know, their, their, their due course to articulate them as ethnographers, but also as researchers, I think is a way to, to, um, to, to really engage with them. And that's what democracy is, right? If researchers don't engage with these stories, if all we do is boil them down to, you know, to their features, which can be quantified and, you know, and, um, and sort of analyzed, uh, you know, uh, then we're not doing justice to, uh, to these sorts of vernacular theories. Yeah, I thought I thought that was a really great interview. It was really exciting to have her on the show and to bring in some of those overlaps between fans and gamers and game designers and the things we've been sort of reading and exploring around like QAnon and, and, and conspiracy and community. And I guess what I thought was really exciting about it that kind of jumped out at me is, you know, Alina's training as like a media theorist really allows her to kind of get into you know, it's always like, it's like medium theory always, you know? So she's talking a lot about, the quote that stuck with me is like, we need to think more of the affect of how we trawl or surf the web, which I thought was really interesting because it's all about, again, same with her stuff around dreams. It's about the content and not so much the form. And so it's like, you know, what do these mediums of, of digital technology and digital culture do to shape the discourse and shape politics already always, which I always think is really interesting. So the stuff around like, it's like, how can we not be fragmented and um, looking at conspiracies in these kind of like fractured and complex ways when that's just the way that we're always processing the information. And I think sometimes it's really important to kind of bring it back to that. So I guess I really appreciated that the way of thinking, you know, because when we think about like surfing the web, it's so true, right? Like we don't surf the web as you'd surf an ocean anymore. We like silo the web, you know, we like look at little subsections and then these little sub communities. And it's almost like that framing of like everything being so niche and so siloed um, mixed with the fragmentation in the medium itself seems to really lend it, lend itself to conspiratorialism. So I guess I really appreciated that taking it back to the kind of like materiality of the actual like things, you know, I'm like grabbing at my computer because I'm thinking about it as like a, as an artifact that shapes these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Adam. And I think that there is something there. It's yet another episode that adds to this kind of scaffolding of these very complex layers that we're seeing uh, behind the dismissals of conspiracy theories and conspiratorial conspiratorialism uh, around us today as something that uh, as something irrational or simply belonging to the realm of fiction and fantasy and, and individualist, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and individualism. And I, I think there is, there was something really uh, great there in how Alina is uh, offering a language to, with which to look at some of those nuances. And I, I love the phrase that she used that some of what she's looking at are some of the practices of this conspiratorialism, uh, conspiratorialism. No, it's we need to edit that, guys. It's uh, 
conspirituality. Some of the uh, practices of just, conspirituality. Aris, go back to the beginning of your sentence then. Okay. Just the beginning of that sentence, yeah. Yeah. And I think especially some of those practices of conspirituality that Alina was talking about, uh, she referred to them very beautifully as epistemological voicings of uh, our inability to control uh, the narrative and the data that we're uh, we're faced with and surrounded by. And I think you know we ought to give them the weight and the attention that um, that they deserve. And uh, regardless of whether you know we and I think perhaps not regardless, but then there is a, a question, a political question. There is a so what question. So how do we move forward from that diagnosis of that, that, that this is a, a rich reality? This reality is richer than we often allow for. Uh, is there a way? And I think this is where we, uh, our joint interest is very relevant, which is, is there a way to then create a counter practice out of those epistemological voicings that sound crazy, but they contain something? And yeah, I think we're, we're on our own quest for that truth uh, in, in that process. But yeah, certainly I think, you know, really fascinating to hear more about this need to, um, to work with different materials, with different languages, with different lenses. Three quick points that I just wanted to highlight from this conversation. The first is that I think it, in the course of our conversation, we traveled uh, along an itinerary that I think is important for us to note uh, and come back to again, which is um, from fan culture and the, 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 the growth of fan culture in the first decades of the 21st century in a digital age on the one hand and on the other, uh, conspirituality. And, you know, we've talked in other episodes of this podcast about the, the evolution of, um, for instance, the QAnon conspiracy fantasy from origins in sort of Gamergate fan culture all the way through the kind of manosphere to, um, to you know, what, what it's eventually turned into. Um, but I think also what's interesting is to then take another itinerary that joins that, which is the uh, of spiritualities in, in a variety of ways. Now, Alina is talking a lot about uh, New Age spirituality, but also I think we can we can witness the 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 transformations of Christian theology in a digital age and other theologies as well that kind of pool together in our conspiratorial moment. And what I, th I heard from Alina's discussion that really uh, fascinated me and connects to some of the things we've been talking about as well is the way that these conspiracy fantasies offer a sense of um, holism or a sense of unity. And that sense of unity, on the one hand, uh, gives a kind of um, a sense of security that everything is connected, and then also a sense that because you, as the bearer of the conspirituality, understand that everything is connected, you can kind of plot a way to feel your agency in this world. And I think both of those things contrast deeply with the actual lived experience of most people, which is that most of us feel we're living in a completely chaotic, alienated, and disconnected world, and that we have no agency. So it makes perfect sense that people would in some way collectively you know, to, to, to tarry with the derogatory term, collectively hallucinate a form of meaning 
and a form of agency in that moment. And I think that connects a lot to some of the things we've been discussing about drawing on Frederick Jameson's notion of cognitive mapping and the idea that we all create these kind of maps of causality in our mind that explain society to ourselves. And that in the postmodern financialized neoliberal condition, those cognitive maps feel less and less reliable. And so we begin to fill in the spaces on the map, you know, here there be dragons with fabulation. Uh, and that fabulation takes many forms, including conspiratorial thinking. And the one other thing I wanted to note is that like in this conversation, we've often drawn on the terminology of insanity and craziness. And I think it just indicates to go back to what we were discussing in our first season of this podcast on which Adam was a guest and Aris and I were the hosts, how inadequate our language around mental health is. Because if we end up using the adjective crazy or insane or you know uh, disturbed, to describe something that is in fact incredibly normal, then perhaps it means that that line that we used to draw between those two designations, it's no longer, if it ever was fit for purpose, it no longer is. And I think we think this especially comes clear when Alina was speaking about the, the, the crazy map or the crazy chart on the wall, you know, all of these photographs that are connected by red thread, uh, this kind of obsessive apophenic impulse to, to discover the connections between different things. You know, at one point, we attributed that behavior to paranoid schizophrenia, or, or, or you know, other uh, pathological cases. But what happens in an age when that is essentially, I mean, to hyperbolize and overextend Alina's argument, what happens when we live in a culture when that is cultural participation? Like when that is one of the most popular forms of engaging with reality is creating these uh, connections between things that seem unconnected. You know, are we now finally realizing the world of capitalism and schizophrenia that Deleuze and Guattari predicted, you know, finally now in a, in a digitalized age? Or, you know, is, is something else going on here? That's enough for this episode. Uh, you've been listening to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, which is season two of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. For more information about this podcast, to listen to other episodes, or to learn about the broader project of which it's a part, please visit conspiracy.games. <laughs>